Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 323. Um, development of the English woodworker, the English woodsmith. And at the point now of the development of interior paneling, style and rails with floating panels, small panels, wide style and rails in this interior woodwork. And trying to determine the... Uh, you know, what century the panel design came from and the, the, uh, the actual frame of the mortise and tenon and the grooves and how all this came together, the 14th, 15th, 16th century, 17th century. So now we're, we're going to evolve from the small panel in, uh, from our last episode into the large panel. So let's get started. So the large panel. Only during the closing years of the 17th century does a remarkable change take place in English paneling, apparently insignificant as this is, being merely a change from the small panel to the large. There lie, behind the trifling obliteration of detail, certain events of far-reaching importance. Hitherto, the craft of the woodworker had been vested in the carpenter and the joiner, who were responsible both for design and for workmanship. There were definite and fast-bound traditions of the trade and certain precautionary methods which were seldom, if ever, ignored. Before even timber could be used at all, it had to be subjected to the scrutiny and approval of certain of the officers of the guild, these officials had plenary powers regarding oak, which was incorrectly cut or improperly seasoned. There are many entries to be found in the records of the carpenter's company, such as paid to the servitude or to the vestige, uh, which means that the servitude received, four, say, four shillings for seizing improper timber. So they were the, they were the timber police. So they were assuring high standards vis-a-vis -vis the government of cutting and drying and seasoning and, and you know, the graining that was picked um, for the, uh, the public places, more or less for the churches and cathedrals. So if we take down a flank of wall paneling of the early Stuart type and examine it from behind, we shall find as a rule that the oak, especially in the panels, is riven, not sewn. The panels are of uneven thickness and smoothed up only on the face side only. If this were invariable, which it is not, one might be tempted to inquire whether the saw was, at this date, a tool of the carpenter or the joiner. We know, however, the saws were used in very, very early times. Riving, or is really what it is, is splitting, with the wedge of this type, the beetle leaves the natural cleavage face on oak. The riving iron follows the grain of the timber, and riven oak stands better than sawn, as park palings and shingles manifest. Even at the present day, these are split, not sawn. So even some of the shingles we put on, say, like the, uh, the Shivers House Museum, again, these are split. Not so. It is one of the striking characteristics of the early craftsmen 
that they followed the right methods of manufacture. Yet by instinct or tradition, which is the trade name for much of the same thing, rather than by ascertained experience, even when the traditional way entailed additional labor. One of the reasons why very early oak woodwork has persisted in England to the present day is that the wood was split instead of being sawn. Simple. During the closing years of the 17th century, a marked change took place in woodworking. The woodworking woodworker had steadily lost status for nearly a hundred years. He was no longer the creator. He was only a workman with which the rise of the architect, beginning with Indigo Jones, he assumed a subordinate position. The architect began to design not only buildings, his proper field, but interior woodwork and even furniture. And the carpenter and the joiner merely executed what the architect designed. Throughout the whole of the 18th century, we find the false position pertaining of the architect dominating the cabinet maker and certain of the latter. Batty and Thomas Langley, halfpenny for our instances, style themselves architects in the design books which they published. Yet, although the architect commanded the woodworker, the former learned continually from the latter. At a latter stage in this inquiry, we shall see the spectacle of the masterful architect Robert Adam, one with the largest practice enjoyed by any architect ever, before or since, employing the famous cabinet makers of his day, yet learning from them practical methods which revolutionized his later designs and caused him to seriously modify his early drawings that teach learned from the pupils. The functions of the architect being confined properly to marble, stone, or brick is not only natural, but perhaps that he should meddle with timber could be a question. Knowing little or nothing of these possibilities or the limitations of the strange material to him, he designed with absolute disregard of the prevailing traditions. He sketched large panels which did not permit of writhing and which demanded jointing in sections, a practice which the early woodworker had steadily refused to continence. The art of joining was known as the panels in which pictures of the school of Van Eck are painted, with bare witnesses as early as the late seventeenth or I'm sorry, the late fourteenth century. It was not that of the carpenter did not know how to edge joint panels. He preferred to run no risk, and in consequence he remained faithful to the small panel. He is the dominant factor, both as executant and as a designer in the early years. But after the architect had attained prominence, the joiner against his better judgment and his trade traditions had to saw and to joint. If fools rush in where angels fear to tread, sometimes full-heartedly people achieve results which the sober-minded have not dared to attempt. The large panel is a case in point. The joiner found, probably to his own amazement, that oak could be sawn, 
and could be edge-joined in large panels, and yet persistent without cracking, shrinking, or even warping. And so, from the ignorant came wisdom, and the large English panel woodwork was developed. It was on the 5th day of February in the year 1674 that a certain John Penshaw, a Cornish gentleman, acquired a set of chambers at number 3 Clifford's Inn within the precincts of the City of London, hard by Temple Bar. Later, he secured an additional set for the space of three lives in consideration of the outlay to which he had been put. The wonderful little room, which is illustrated in that engraving, shows how he spent his money. He lived to enjoy his panels for 28 years. Benjamin Penshaw showed him in possession, and in 1722, the third life, John Rogers succeeded, and the lease then was determined. Fleet Street, upon which Clifford's Inn abuts, was a was very different in 1674 to what it is at the present day. Bazalette's embarkment was undreamed of, and on the south side, dinghy lanes gave on to muddy Thames below. It is possible that John Penshaw, from the window, uh, windows of his chambers and Clifford's Inn, may have gazed on mercantile shipping as vessels were of light draught in those days. Although Old London Bridge, with its streets and houses of the bridge itself, must have barred any tall ships from adventuring any higher than the pool. The houses on the south side of Fleet Street would hardly obstruct the view of one perched up high in Clifford's Inn, as many must have been in the processes of rebuilding in consequence with the Great Fire of 1666. This Clifford's Inn room is not the pioneer of the large panel, although it is amongst one of the earliest that I've been recognized to understand. It is not until 14 years after John Penshaw had entered into peaceful possession of his room and chambers that the Earl, afterwards the Duke of Devonshire, employed Robert Owen and Henry Lobb, the London joiners, in the large paneled woodwork at Chatsworth. Samuel Watson, a Derbyshire man, executed much of the fine carvings in soft lime tree in the great chamber, and in the style of Grinland Gibbings, whereas Penshaw's enrichments are in Barbados cedar, Watson was still carving at Chatsworth 13 years after John Penshaw had surrounded one of his lives namely his own. If the dining room at Ham House may have said to be paneled in the new, large manner, the panels are of comparatively small area compared with those at Clifford's Inn, though, then the latter is not the earliest by some ten years. Still, it must have been something new, and even epic-making. At the time when it was done, and there is nothing as fine as the quality in Ham House. Who the architect was, we do not know. But it is certain that Penshaw's paneling must have been designed by one. Whether Wren, busy in schemes for the rebuilding of St. Paul's and unobstructed in most 
irritating fashion by the Duke of York, acted in an advisory capacity, so we have no doubts meaning or knowing, but Christopher Wren and Grinland Gibbings undoubtedly inspired the Clifford's in woodwork. The former, who was hoisted in a basket every week to the top of St. Paul's, endangering life and limb for a paltry 50 pounds a year, could hardly have any of the dominating influence in 1674, which his fellow architect, Robert Adam, possessed less than 100 years later. But Wren's prestige was just as great, and he overtopped Adam immeasurably before he died. Yet his reward in money was scanty indeed, nor did succeeding generations of architects ever confess how much they owed to the man who designed more than one half of the churches in the city of London. Thus the lesser have borrowed from the greater, since the dawn of man and often without acknowledgement. The error of the large panel in oak was comparatively short-lived. Oak to stand without warping or shrinking demands quarter-cutting, and in consequence, narrow boards with many joints. The red or Mendel deal imposes no such restrictions. Consequently, it soon replaced the harder timbers. The taste of the day was for the higher and lighter rooms, which necessitated painting. Even the oak paneling at the, Clifford, the Clifford's Inn room had many coats, which had to be pickled and stripped. Then it came into the possession of the Victorian Albert Museum at a price of 606 pounds. How far would $3,000 go towards the purchase of that today? Again, comes in the accidental discovery. Deal is not a picturesque wood and was never intended to be left in its natural state. But lead painted for generations and then stripped, the wood takes on a lovely faded pencil cedar color, utterly uncontemplated at the date when the first coat was applied. The first stripping was intended solely for educational purposes, to show the natural timber and the construction. But out of this has arisen the present-day fashion for those stripped deal rooms, many of these which were growing timber long after the date of the Clifford's End Room. Demand creates supply that is only natural. The use of the large panel in English woodwork inevitably endangered a new style. The architect that style in the classical or Palladian direction, and we got the boldly projects and skirting and surbase moldings and classical cornices with their entablatures, now a part of the wall and, therefore, of the room and not of the ceiling, as with the older work. The room was often constructed with the paneling, not merely with the walls clothed with woodwork, as a mere decorative adjunct. The constructive appearance was still further enhanced by the use of pilasters, not as, not as simple features of the wainscoting, as in the instance of the extra room, but fulfilling their proper purpose in supporting something such as an entablature of a room the shelf of a mantle or the cornice of a window. Here is a return again to the constructive thoroughness and purity of principle, which I find nearly always in new styles. 
So designing always had to follow fixed principles and laws. A badly proportioned treatment of a classical room would no longer pass for designing idiosyncrasies. Everything had to be correct. This was all, this was recognized at the time and is evident from the fact that every design book of that period commences as a matter of course with five orders. The diagrams giving the correct proportions of moldings, columns, and pilasters. The, project, the projecting chimney breast, which is a rarity in houses of the Stuart period or earlier, became a feature and was treated decoratively with breaks and miters. The usual, the usual cornice copied that of the classical building and the dado, the combination of surbase and skirting, with a plane or panel space between, was treated as a base to the room, as it should be. Doors are also assumed a dignity and an importance they had not hitherto possessed in the past. Above the mantle was often an elaborate frame containing either a picture of or a mirror, more often the former. Perhaps one of the most charming of the features of these classical architect design rooms is the treatment of corners with open niches, such as the example from Bristol. Decorative china was now coming into vogue, chiefly oriental, brought back from the east in tea clippers or the uh, certain boats of, say, the John Company. The houses of this period, if lacking much of the earlier home-like character, were more convenient in some ways, running less to outhouses and to odd corners. As an offset, they were usually four stories or more in height, which meant flights of stairs for the unfortunate domestics as they worked in the bowels of the earth and slept just under the stairs. And the basement had become a settled and abiding institution. The entrance door to the, to the house took on a large dignity, overshadowing all external details. Whereas in the house of the carpenter, the door was one of the more several openings to the interior and otherwise comparatively inconspicuous. Many of those early 18th century doorways are exceedingly fine in character. And to me, the houses of this period appear to suggest in every way the development away from the communal life of the earlier days and to intensify the ever-widening gulf between the two classes. Those, in the words of Hine, born with saddles as compared with others born with spurs. It is not that England was growing wealthier, simply that its wealth was becoming more centralized, getting into fewer hands. The status of the working classes was steadily becoming lower and lower until during the first years of the 19th century, the first Poor Law Act, since known as the Springland Act, was passed for the relief not of the out-of-work, but for the artisan, for the artisan. So amazing, as it was found to the utter surprise of the governing classes. Naturally, the wages paid in early, nearly every trade were so miserably inadequate, particularly to artisans and workmen, that they were literally starving at their benches, starving every day. That's how they were 
wrenching the money out of them. And at the same time, commodities of every description were <clears throat> ruining and uh, becoming most dear. Yet, there are people, even at the present day, who maintain that wages follow prices. Still, the houses of the wealthy were fine and the interiors magnificent, even if well out of sight were hovels in which the makers of these fine houses lived and they died there. The, <clears throat> the latter, rather frequently, it is to be feared. So behind the victorious army, there must be many graves, however. That is a necessity corollary of victory in any society. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.